electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, Sarah, thank you very much, and welcome, everybody, to Overtime. I am Scott Wagner. You just heard the bells. We are just getting started here post-night at the New York Stock Exchange, and we want to get right to our talk of the tape. That dire warning moments ago about stocks from star investor Scott Minard, the chief investment officer of Guggenheim Partners, tweeting, as we said just a few minutes ago. Here it is, quote, since 1960, PEs have trended lower when inflation is higher, with year-over-year core PCE now at 4.6%. And S&P 500 trading at 19 times. We should see stocks fall another 20% by mid-October if historical seasonals mean anything. We welcome in Mr. Minard right now. He joins us in a CNBC exclusive interview. It's great to talk to you again. Um, A rather ominous warning. Why now? Well, Scott, look, the... um, um First off, when you're looking at history, and that's one of the things I try to spend a lot of time doing, uh, it really is stark to see the price-earnings ratio where it is. And why right now? Well, this is seasonally the worst time of the year. And uh, August, September, October are the worst performing times for the stock market. And, you know, given the recent strength over the last few days, it just appears that people are ignoring uh, the macro backdrop, uh, monetary policy backdrop, uh, which would basically indicate that uh, the bear market is intact. And given where seasonals are and how far out of line we are historically with uh, where the P.E. is, uh, we should see, a, I think, a, a really sharp adjustment in prices very fast. You're basically saying there's no justification for why stocks are trading at what you think is an elevated valuation, whether it's to where they should be now or relative to history, because you don't believe that earnings are going to be able to be uh, sustained at these levels. Exactly. And the the other thing, too, Scott, you know, it's interesting, the the P.E. that I'm looking at in in the tweet is the, the, the trailing P.E., and so we're looking at uh, the comparable data for the market in, in, with a trailing P.E. So the argument could be, hey, we're going to see earnings pick up, and, and that'll help the price-earnings ratio. But you know, given the backdrop we're in, which we may very well already be in a recession, I don't see earnings picking up dramatically. And actually, I see some downward pressure on earnings coming out of energy and other sectors where we've had price declines. So... Um, uh, you know, the you know the four most dangerous words in investing is this time it's different, and this is just so stark from history. Um, and when I was on the show with you back in April, um, we were talking about recession, and I said one of the most important indicators of recession would be if the uh, the three month bill uh, began to trade higher than um, uh, the ten year note. And you know, as we sit here today. Um, you know, the three-month bill <clears throat> is, you know, still slightly below uh, where the 10-year note is. But if the Fed delivers on 75 basis points, um, you know, we're going to have a pretty sharp repricing in the front end, and um, you know, we're going to start discounting, uh, uh, you know, a complete inversion in the yield curve. 
What, what do you say to those who, who, who suggest, to those who say, like you are, that we may already be in a recession, or we are, that we just simply can't be? The job market is too strong right now, and frankly, some of the economic metrics that we've had of late don't show recession either. So how do you respond to that? Well, I think there are two factors here that uh, uh, we have to take in consideration. One is productivity. Uh, productivity has just been abysmal. And so we are getting more people back to work, but we're actually seeing a decline in the output per worker. And so that is, that's obviously a very important component of corporate profits. Um, the other thing is that the employment indicator is a laggard, and that is that uh, we tend to see unemployment rise uh, as the recession just gets started, so uh, or after the recession has started. So you know, I think at this point, um, you know, a lot of the things people are pointing to uh, are what I'll say nominally positive. Uh, you know, you look at some things like, uh, you know, uh, some of the components of consumption, other things like this, uh, wage growth. But at the same time, inflation is running so high that in real terms, these are actually negative numbers. And uh, that's how we measure GDP in real terms. 75 basis points is the number that you uh, threw out moments ago. Is, is that your base case now for a couple of weeks uh, from now? You think they're going to do that? I think so, Scott. I think that, uh, that the uh, message is being telegraphed uh, very clearly that they want to uh, front load this and, and uh, you know, show the world that they're serious about inflation. And, you know, given where the market's pricing for the next rate hike, we're very close to it anyway. So I think the Fed will want to take advantage of that and, and uh, you know, uh, see if they can get ahead of the curve and the tightening. You believe the Fed? And I ask you that because there are a number of people who don't. And there are also those who say that the Fed is not going to do uh, what they suggest they are. And for that matter, they might not have to because they look at inflation metrics and they say it's starting to roll over. And it's rolling over in some key areas, although it is sticky, admittedly, in others. So maybe they're not going to have to do what they originally said they would or what investors broadly think they will. Right. Well, I mean, I'll, let, I'll come at that a couple of angles. Um, first off, I think we're already in restrictive territory. Uh, I think the neutral rate is somewhere in the neighborhood of 2%, give or take. And so uh, we're, we're, we're just moving into a more restrictive mode. Um, the other side of the coin, however, is that you, know, you get people like Mohamed Alarian who uh, you know, will tell you that the neutral, the neutral rate is higher, uh, that if, if the Fed stops because we get a few months here where we have month-over-month -month increases in prices basically flat to negative, uh, that that might risk their credibility. And so I, I think there is, uh, there, is a, there is a thought or a fear at the Fed that if they abruptly end or pause, that uh, they're going to run the risk of blowing their credibility as an inflation fighter. So uh, I'm not ruling out a pause. I actually made a comment about that about a month ago. I, I think uh, you know, that the Fed is, is trying to leave the door open for what I call a soft pivot. But uh, given the latest rhetoric, 
uh, I think they're they're trying to send a message loud and clear. Don't expect us to do it right now or anytime soon. I'm glad you you say that because you do have the Fed chair himself today uh, try and pass the message of how resolute he and his colleagues are. I can assure you that my colleagues, he said, and I are strongly committed to this project and we will keep at it until the job is done. And Scott, he went further. The longer that inflation remains well above target, the greater the concern that the public will start to just naturally incorporate higher inflation into its economic decision making. Our job is to make sure that doesn't happen. The question is, can they do that? Well, Scott, I think the uh, the tweet kind of ties into all of this today. Because um, if we do get the kind of decline that I would expect going into October, uh, then that is going to raise concerns about market uh, instability. And uh, that would be the kind of thing that would, I think, cause them to pause. Um, otherwise, you know, there will be concern that, uh, uh, that the financial system may be becoming destabilized, and so they could justify a pause then. Uh, and then, of course, with equity prices down 20%, that could be a real blow to confidence, and uh, it could deepen the concerns I have about recession. So, um, you know, I, I think they are. Uh, I think the chairman uh, is uh, his rhetoric is overdoing it a bit. Um, you know, he he was too soft on inflation initially. Uh, I think he's probably moving in the direction of being too hard on it. Uh, you know, it's it's funny that. Uh, um, we we keep talking about all these causes of inflation, and uh, anybody who's studied inflation knows that it's all related to the money supply. Um, the, the Fed is really, really restricting the money supply very hard, and uh, you know you do start to to see signs that with M2 contracting, uh, with QT going on, uh, that perhaps the uh, pressure of monetary policy on the economy is a lot. Uh, more robust than is being expressed uh, solely in the overnight rate. You, you sound obviously, you know, so negative, but you do at the same time reintroduce the concept of a Fed put that a stock market decline, the likes of which you say could happen, could bring the Fed uh, back in uh, when many uh, still think that that is dead. I mean, maybe if you get a seize up in credit, it would be the credit markets that would bring the Fed back to the table, but certainly a stock market decline. I mean, they need, they need conditions to tighten. Do you think that would cause too much of a dislocation that would bring them back? Yeah, I think so. And let me tell you, you, you bring up an interesting point about credit. I think if we get a, an abrupt decline in the stock market, then uh, that will cause credit markets to seize up. And uh, <clears throat> the truth is, when you look at where a lot of uh, high yield debt is not trading, <laughs> that is, you know, the, the, it's been put away, and there are a lot of triple C companies out there. And you know, I pull up my screen and I see it indicated at ten percent for like one year or whatever. Um, if that bond comes due uh, in this kind of an environment. They're not going to be paying 10% for new money. They're going to be paying 13 or 15, or maybe there is no price at all. And so, um, you know, if we did get uh, that abrupt decline in equities that that I'm anticipating, then I, I think we would probably see the high yield market seize up and and uh, a lot of concern about people being able to refinance their debt. 
How, how are you positioning uh, as a result of, of how you feel and this view that you're expressing to our viewers uh, who would admittedly are probably a little unnerved uh, by what they're hearing from you? Well, I think that, uh, look, it, you know, I'm, I'm not prescient. I, I'm not, I don't have a, a perfect handle on the future. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, we look at things in terms of our beta. Uh, in terms of our credit beta, uh, we're running about 70% of the max, which means we're above average uh, because the, mar- the, the you know, the, the bonds are cheap uh, relative to Treasury, corporate debt, uh, even high yield. But, you know, we have dry powder to increase that exposure if what happens happens here. Uh, we have a fairly sizable uh, position in puts uh, on uh, the S&P 500 and other indices uh, as a, a hedge against the events that, uh, that I'm talking about. And in terms of uh, treasuries and uh, interest rate exposure, uh, we're pretty much max long. Um, I think we're in the process of putting a top in in long-term rates, and uh, we've been running with uh, an above-average position uh, on a duration basis now for for the last few months. And uh, it's been a little painful over the last four weeks, but uh, has actually been uh, a pretty good position to be in. And I think that uh, if you're thinking of the backdrop I'm talking about, where we would have a, a stark decline in risk assets, uh, that would be extremely good for treasuries, and, and we would see long-term rates come down. Do you get more bullish on equities if, in fact, they do go down 20 percent? We'll call it, you know, 3,000 or so on the S&P or thereabouts. Yeah, I would, you know, somewhere in that zone. I'm, I'm thinking somewhere between 3,000 and let's broadly say 3,000 and 3,400. We'll, we'll figure out the bottom when we get there. But, uh, you know, I would say uh, at that point I'm a buyer uh, because if you believe everything I just said, if you believe that the Fed will pause, uh, you know, it's going to be supportive uh, for risk assets and, uh, and the seasonals turn around. Um, you know, seasonals turn positive in November through March actually through June. So uh, the old adage of buy in May go, you know, or sell in May, go away, come again at Labor Day. Uh, statistically, it's actually the first game of the World Series, and I would expect the Dodgers will sweep the World Series this year. <laughs> you may have a vested interest in making that call. I, I totally understand. But are you also suggesting that while the next, call it four to five or so weeks, could be decidedly painful, that if the market presents itself to become more advantageous, that we could actually have a decent finish to the year at the same time? I would expect so. I mean, I, I think that if, if my scenario plays out, uh, I think it'll be a buying opportunity, and especially uh, for traders, I think it will be, be a great time in the November and December and going into the, the first quarter. Um, the, the real question, Scott, is will that be the, the ultimate bottom? And uh, not that I think this is anything like 2008. I don't think it's like the financial crisis. But, you know, for people um, like me who were big buyers uh, at the lows of of October of 2008 after Lehman failed, uh, we didn't really get the ultimate low until March of 2009. And um, that was a painful period for me. But it was still a great, for long-term investors, it was still a great time to get in. We'll make that the last word. And I so much appreciate uh, you calling in and having this conversation. I really enjoyed it. 
um, however dire uh, it sounds. I certainly like to get the view of Scott Minard of Guggenheim. Let's broaden the conversation now. Bring in CNBC contributors Joe Terranova of Virtus Investment Partners and Stephanie Link of Hightower Advisors. It's great having both of you here. Joe, you're to my left or right here at Post 9. Um, your immediate reaction to a fairly ominous call, to say the least, from Scott Miner just now. That's exactly why the market has been rallying the last couple of days, because there is this overwhelming pessimism that has been rebuilt into the market again in reaction to Chairman Powell's Jackson Hole speech and the price action in the month of August. Um, statistically, everything that Scott cited is accurate. It is on point. And it is indicative of an earnings outlook that should see earnings contract and see a lower valuation, in particular for hyper growth type of equities. But collectively, with all that being said, okay, if I'm thinking that a very strong period is coming between November and March, and I ultimately have to incur 20% down in the market ahead of that, okay. Individual equity holdings, I'm not so sure I'm going to be selling them here. I'm going to go to the derivative market, and it sounds to me like that's what Scott was doing. I think he said he's got some S&P puts. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to the derivative. He said said sizable. Okay. I'm going to go to the S&P derivative market. I'm going to go to the derivative market overall, and I'm going to formulate a position to take advantage of a near-term outlook that I have believing that prices can fall precipitously. But for my core portfolio equity holdings, I'm not going to move on those. I'm not going to sell those. I'm going to maintain uh, I'm going to maintain my long exposure. So, Steph, Joe, Joe brings up a good point that I feel like our viewers are going to be thinking about as they just listened to the conversation with Minard and wondering what they're supposed to do. Um, conventional wisdom would say you're not supposed to sit here and call your broker and say, sell everything, um, because when are you going to know when to get back in? Um, That's conventional wisdom. And I think most of our guests on this network, whatever program they're coming on, would suggest that. Um, However, if you do think that we're going down 20 percent or so in the next four to five weeks, what would you advise people to do? Well, I think it's really hard, Scott, to to time it. Um, And I think Scott was saying it's going to be a great time to trade stocks if you're a trader. But if you are a long-term investor, you do want to have a diversified portfolio. You want to upgrade your portfolio in terms of quality names, free cash flow companies. We've been talking about it all year long. I've been doing it all year long. And so I think you, you stay the course and you stay patient. You keep your head down and and, and, and just try to focus on the fundamentals. Um, we've talked about this year being a very choppy market, a trading range market. We're up 9.3% uh, from the June lows. And nothing really has changed from the June lows. And today, the Fed just reiterated what they've been saying. All of the governors and, himself, and Powell himself have been saying that they have to be more hawkish because inflation is still very persistent. And as a result, they're going to slow down the economy. And so None of that was a surprise today. I don't know why we rallied today. Maybe we got oversold. But I think in these kinds of environments, you have to just stay the course, be committed. Equities are a good long-term investment, especially if you have companies that are growing their dividends. That's why I mentioned free cash flow. So I can't day trade and I can't time the market. All I can say is I'm looking at my companies where at least I have some confidence in earnings. Maybe they're going to come down a little bit. They probably will. Uh, But I still like 
like the long-term themes at companies, long-term market share positioning, and good company management teams? It, it raises, uh, Miner does, uh, a, a quandary of, of sorts for somebody like you, Steph, who describes, if you will, for our viewers, what essentially is a sit-on-your-hands market, right? Don't do anything dramatic. But then I look at the moves that you've been making of late, and it has been yeah. dollar cost averaging in, taking advantage of some of the dislocations in the stocks that you've liked. He raises the question that I ask you next of simply whether it's too early to do that if you're the average Joe or Jane watching. Probably because September is historically a choppy month for sure. And the early part of October, starting in the second half of October into the end of the year, it's seasonally the strong period. So if you want to be cute, yeah, you can wait. But at the same time, I mean, if you have some cash on the sidelines, we talked about this on halftime. I have a little bit more cash. I'm still very invested in stocks, but I have a little bit more cash. We're trying to stay patient. And we have a whole bunch, a couple of weeks coming up of conference season. This is the time to start to do the homework and pick ideas. But sure, I mean, I've been kind of taking some profits along the way. We talked about American Express. So I sold that. But I bought more Berkshire. I bought more Bank of America. I sold Wynn. And I bought Dollar General. So, like, I'm looking for opportunities to, to upgrade, as I mentioned, um, and to try to find companies that are not, that are not really high beta, right? Right? I mean, mm -hmm. just companies that, you know, they don't move up 5 and 10% in a day kind of thing. They have strong yeah. earnings, good balance sheets, et cetera. You know, Joe, um, one of the other provocative things that Minard had to say was the idea of reintroducing the Fed put, right? Those are my words, not his. But he made the point that if you get a dislocation, the likes of which he suggests you might, of some 20%, you're going to get a credit event along with that. And that could be in and of itself enough to reintroduce uh, the idea that the Fed backs off. Uh, I think he, he used the terminology a soft pivot, um, but you get the point of what, what he is suggesting. And it's going to feel uh, rather ugly uh, at that moment that the, that the market does go down to that degree. Sure. I mean, that all sounds, that's a nightmare scenario. I, I understand that. But the evidence as we have it right now, Scott, is that we are seeing the credit markets functioning well. The leveraged loan market is functioning well. We've got a, a Citrix leveraged loan uh, that went o with overwhelming demand, $4 billion has been, uh, been actually taken down by the street. So there's strong demand there. The Federal Reserve is going to, I said this, I, I sat with you on the, the night of Jackson Hole that Friday. I said the Federal Reserve is going to go 75 basis points in September. That's what they have to do. They're going to continue to do that. I think markets understand that. They understand that that's ultimately the position. Well, they understand that 75 could be coming in a couple of weeks. What I don't think they understand is that if inflation remains elevated or is the Fed, if the Fed truly remains as resolute as they sound, that it may not be 75 and then 25 and then 25. It could be 75. It could be more. They could keep rates elevated for a longer period of time than people think. That changes the whole ball game of what it means for the economy, earnings, and ultimately stocks. So, so for me, the perspective that I have looking at markets is uh, my theory is that the Federal Reserve will, will stop raising rates either in December or in Q1 of 2023. The risk to my theory is that you are correct. The Federal Reserve continues to raise rates. They cannot properly affect bringing down inflation. And therefore, these interest rate hikes are going to be with us 
for a large majority of 2023. That's problematic for risk assets. That's the scenario where my thesis, I look at it and I say I'm wrong. All right. Uh, we'll see what happens. I appreciate you being here uh, to break it down. Joe Terranova, Stephanie Link. I'll see both of you soon, I know. Let's get to our Twitter question of overtime. Following Scott Minard's call at the top of the hour, do you see a 20% sell-off in the S&P by mid-October? You can head to at CNBC Overtime on Twitter. Cast your vote. We'll share those results later on in the show. DocuSign earnings, they are out. Steve Kovac has those numbers for us. Hi, Steve. Hey there, Scott. Yeah, shares surging on a huge beat here from DocuSign, up 16% now. Uh, let's go over the numbers. Earnings per share uh, coming in at 44 cents adjusted. That's versus the 42 cents adjusted Street was looking for. On the revenue side, also a beat, $622 million versus the $602 million Street looking for. And guidance also coming in better than expected, up to $628 million in revenue for the Q3. Uh, that's versus $625 million expected. Uh, I would also note another software company, Z scaler is, is surging as well. Oh, now we're up 17%, Scott. Uh, COVID beneficiary uh, proving perhaps that it can, can do well uh, on the backside of the pandemic. Steve Kovac, thank you for that uh, from out in San Francisco for us. We're just getting started now in overtime. Up next, recession worries front and center. Our next guest is remaining solidly bullish despite all the noise, despite that call from Scott Minard. We'll ask him about it coming up next and later going for growth. Rich Bernstein says there's one sector that's evolved into an even growthier space than technology. He joins us to make that case. We're live from the New York Stock Exchange. We're right back in OT. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to Overtime. We gave you the bear case at the top of the show with Scott Minard of Guggenheim. Let's now get the bull case with Credit Suisse Chief U.S. Equity Strategist Jonathan Golub, who came here at Post 9. So I hope you heard the interview uh, with Minard down 20% by mid-October. Your rebuttal, if any, is? Well, oh, well there's, a, there's a whole bunch of things I thought that, that I would take the other side of. Let's, but, let's hear it. So first, you know, we, everybody's talking about recession as if we know what that means. You know? And so we went back just recently and we looked at the last 50 years of recessions to see, like, what are the patterns? And it really comes down to one simple thing, is that recessions are a disintegration in the labor market. The unemployment rate on average goes up by about 3% in about a year. Roughly what that means is 4 million Americans lose their job around a recession with a low end on that range of two and a high end of six. So recessions are really ugly things. What you see typically before recession is that the weekly jobless claims, which just came out today better than expected, they start to rise. Companies start to fire workers. That's what normally happens. We've seen that already. But when 
when things are healthy, those, those workers get a new job and the unemployment rate doesn't rise. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now, which is we're seeing terminations, and you see this, and you guys report on this, but the but there's so many excess jobs in the marketplace mm -hmm. that our work shows that it takes probably from here 18 to 24 months before we work through all of those open job wrecks so we get to a point where unemployment rates back. So there is a recession in our future. The question is how far, if, if it's six months from now, you want to bail on stocks and Scott's right. If it's 18 months, then not, then not the case. So one of your headlines is historically earnings hold up best when inflation is elevated. He says off the top of his tweet, since 1960, PEs have trended lower when inflation is higher. I mean, both of you, both of you can't be right. Why do you think that earnings are, are going to hold up in the kind of environment that we're in if the Fed is as resolute as it says it's going to be and is now? Right. So there's, let's, let's unpack that. First, okay. if you look at um, earnings. What most people quote and, and, and look at is, is the last couple of times, the last couple of recessions, um, we've been in a low inflation environment. And low inflation environments, earnings peak about 15 months beforehand. So, And Scott, Scott says something really interesting, which is it's all about real earnings. So earnings are probably not going up in real terms, but in nominal terms they are. We're, we're likely to see earnings continue to trend perfectly fine until that recession actually begins. So if you're looking at the last couple of, of recessions, you, you're really looking at an environment that doesn't look like this. This looks more like we had in the 70s and 80s, and the earnings held up um, you know, much better. Now, with respect to the Fed, there's a whole different set of dynamics. I, mean, okay. I, can, I can jump on. But, do it real quick. Yeah, so the... Um, you can't leave me hanging like that. Yeah, I mean, no, no, all right. So... so the, the Fed needs us to the Fed needs us to fear them, to fear that, you know, to not spend money because we fear that we're going into recession. Companies shouldn't spend and the like. But the inflation expectations, the tips market, the break evens, the economist surveys, they're all telling you that the what's actually baked into the market is that inflation is going to collapse over the next year ago. Now, you and I could say that's crazy. Wages are high and rents are a problem. But if you look at the tips market, it's saying that inflation a year from now will be under 2%. The Fed is not managing this month's inflation number. They're managing an inflation number that's 12 to 18 months out. And if the tips market is saying that we're under 2%, they, they really don't have an incentive to crush us and push us unnecessarily towards that recession. All right, we'll see. We'll follow up with you as well. I appreciate it very much. That's Jonathan Golub joining us right here post-9 at the New York Stock Exchange. It's time for a CNBC News update with Shepard Smith. Hi, Shep. Hi, Scott. From the news on CNBC, here's what's happening. As the world mourns the death of Queen Elizabeth II and thousands of Londoners pay their respects at Buckingham Palace, Prince Charles is now king. According to the British line of succession, he immediately ascended to the throne when Queen Elizabeth died. Royal officials say he will be known as King Charles III. As for what happens over the next few days, the palace has long had a plan in place known as Operation London Bridge. No official details yet, but it's expected the Queen will be given a full state funeral, likely around 10 days from now. Her body also expected to lie in state to allow the British public a chance to say goodbye to the only monarch most have ever known. Tonight, complete coverage of the Queen's death. Wilfred Frost joins us from London. We'll explain the monarchy's line of succession and the Queen's impact on generations of world leaders. That plus the rest of the day's big news headlines, and there are a lot of them on the news. 7 Eastern, CNBC. Scott, back to you. All right, we'll join you then. Shep, thank you. That's Shepard Smith. Overtime, be right back. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Given the recent strength over the last few days, it just appears that people are ignoring uh, the macro backdrop, uh, monetary policy backdrop, uh, which would basically indicate that uh, the bear market is intact. And given where seasonals are and how far out of line we are historically with uh, where the PE is, uh, we should see, a, I think, a, a really sharp adjustment in prices very fast. All right, that ominous warning on stocks from Guggenheim Scott Miner just moments ago. Let's bring in now Rich Bernstein. He's the CEO and CIO of Rich Bernstein Advisors. So you just heard Minard, um, as I said, you're the CIO. I mean, you've got to make these key investment decisions at your shop. What do you do with it? Do you believe it or not? Well, I, I wish I had the foresight, the short-term foresight that Scott has to make a prediction for four to six weeks. But I will say... Um, that I think that people are grossly underestimating what the Fed is going to have to do to fight inflation. It seems to me it's incredibly ironic that investors are even considering a Fed pivot when the real Fed funds rate remains about as most negative as it has historically been. So the Fed isn't, isn't even really heartily fighting inflation yet. We don't have a positive real Fed funds rate. It's hard to argue that, that we should turn wildly bullish anytime soon. So I don't know if I'm in Scott's camp, but I think the tone of his discussion is probably the correct one. Well, what camp are you in then? I mean, if you're not as perhaps dire as he suggests, 20 percent lower and also saying, by the way, that he has a, quote, sizable puts position uh, in the S&P right now. What, what's your camp? So we have, uh, Scott, we have, we have um, probably the biggest cash allocation we've had in years. We are underweight equities in our multi-asset portfolios. So as I said, I think I'm on the same side as Scott on this. I'm just um, kind of a little bit poking fun at his ability to forecast four to six weeks. No, I, I, I hear you, um, and, I, and I, I get that. Uh, that said... Mm-hmm. Are there areas of the market that you are are still in favor of, even if you have such a tremendously large cash uh, cash position relative to your own history? Yeah. So so I think there's look when we have a situation where the Fed is tightening, tightening and profits are decelerating, which is really two themes that you've been talking about in the past hour or so that what works in that environment with the Fed tightening and profits decelerating a very bad environment, by the way, you don't want that combination of events, but that's what we're kind of faced with. What works? Consumer staples, healthcare, utilities. Traditional defensive stuff works in that environment. That's hardly people's favorites right now, right? People are really still focused on the growth themes, and growth doesn't work in the environment that we're outlining here. Well, we're going to see um, if it does or if it doesn't moving forward. I'm tight on time, and I appreciate you understanding that. Rich, we'll have you back. Absolutely. Thank you. That's Rich Bernstein. Uh, Rich Bernstein Advisors up next. Cashing in on the energy pullback. One halftime committee member is buying the dip in oil. Debate that move in today's halftime overtime next. In today's halftime overtime, buying the energy pullback with Nat Gas having its worst week since late July and crude oil touching its lowest level since January. Josh Brown is hitting the buy button on two new names, NextEra and Southwestern Gas. Let's listen. 
Oh, Joe Terranova is back with us. You can listen to him instead. You Guess did what? listen to it earlier. Of course I did. I watched it. time <laughs> I heard, Josh. What about this idea? I mean, you're a big proponent of energy here. I am. Well, first of all, let's understand something. So far, year to date, energy equities are up 41%, while the spot price of oil is only up 10%. Since July 1st, the spot price of oil is down 21%. Energy equities are up 10%. So the energy equity trade is the right trade because you have companies that focus right now on shareholder return. They're not incentivized to increase production. But you really, like, but you really think that if, if, if oil continues to go lower and that gas continues to go lower, that the equities are going to still work in that, in that environment? I believe that they will, and I believe that they are critical to have in your portfolio. We just heard Rich Bernstein talk about the defensive nature of markets, include energy in that because potentially if something were to go wrong, you want to have uh, that energy sector allocation within your portfolio. What's, but your, I, favorite, what's your favorite name? I'm sorry, we're, we're tight. I, I got to get that out of so you. What's I, your favorite I, name right now? Favorite name right now would be One Oak. Why? Natural gas play, strong shareholder return. Okay, good stuff, and thank you for understanding as well. That's Joe Terranova. Up next, we're tracking all the biggest movers in overtime. Steve Kovac is all over that action for us back out in San Francisco. Steve? Hey there, Scott. Yeah, coming up, shares in both halves of a former combined company taking in overtime, plus a stock buyback announcement helping boost a telecom company. That's next when we're back. We're tracking the biggest movers in the OT. Steve Kovac here with that once again, Steve. Hey, yes. Uh, check out shares of cloud security provider Zscaler up better than 11 percent right now. That's after beating estimates on both lines, including revenue of three hundred eighteen million dollars versus three hundred five million dollars expected. Growth was up sixty one percent year over year and billings growth up fifty seven percent year over year. However, the stock is down fifty two percent so far year to date, turning to uh, two stocks that are not faring as well in the overtime, both Smith and Wesson and American Outdoor brands falling sharply. Remember, American Outdoor Brands is sports products manufacturer that was spun out from Smith & Wesson in 2020. Both companies reporting earnings that disappointed investors, but Smith & Wesson management saying the inventory correction should largely be behind the company. And finally, let's get to T-Mobile. That stock moving higher in overtime as the board authorizes a buyback program for up to $14 billion of T-Mobile common stock. That purchasing expected to come from cash on hand and at least one debt issuance. Those are your movers in overtime. And back to you, Scott. All right, Steve Kovac, thank you very much. Up next, a late day trade alert. Capital Wealth Planning's Kevin Simpson is getting back into a big tech name. He's going to reveal it right after this. And do not miss a CNBC special report. Blue Chip Playbook, hosted by our own Sarah Eisen, 6 p.m. Eastern Time OT. Right back. Apple giving up gains today after yesterday's broader tech rally. Shares of that stock falling about, there you see, just about 1% on the day. My next guest says he's buying back into that stock after calling it away in late July. Kevin Simpson, founder and CIO of Capital Wealth Planning, joining me now. It's good to see you. I appreciate you alerting us to this move. Why today? Well, we were talking just last Tuesday, Scott, saying if if the trend could pull back under 155 into 145 range, that it was a good buy, good opportunity. We've exercised a little patience, and it sure hasn't been easy. You know, you and I have had fun talking about it for the past few months, and we were writing covered calls like crazy. And eventually it got called in late July, but it got called at 157 and a half. Of course, as luck would have it, Murphy's Law, whoever you want to call it, 
kept going higher and higher and higher right after that. I think it peaked up over 170. But with a little patience and a little dry powder, we were able to get back in lower than what we had it called away for. And the really neat thing is we've generated $11 in premiums since May 1st as well. So we like mm -hmm. the name. I think there's still weakness in this market. We're heading into September and October, and you and I know what happens uh, occasionally in those months. But re-entering at this point to me seemed like a prudent call, and I'm excited to be back in the stock. You know, it was interesting. We had uh, our Twitter poll uh, the other day asking our viewers, 170 or 140, what's the next stop for the stocks? 141, overwhelmingly. I'm wondering what you, what you make of, of that kind of pessimism around a name where there rarely is that. Yeah, I texted you. I, I voted a thousand times in that poll yesterday. The, yeah. um, the, the, the P.E. is at 25. So it's got recurring revenue. It's a great I mean, it's a great name. It's a great revenue stream. But if we're concerned about valuations, if we're thinking about where S&P earnings can be next year, if we're thinking about where Apple earnings can be next year, it was great news yesterday that they didn't increase prices on the products on one hand as a consumer, but as a shareholder, you know, you're looking for margin growth. And that, that's something that maybe we're going to be in a little bit of a stalled pattern for a while. Could it get down to 135? Absolutely. We're going to continue to buy the stock. We're going to accumulate a position. We're going to write covered calls on it. And we're going to be a long-term investor in a great name. Hey, what about this call by Minard uh, at the top of our program today? I know you were busy and you may not have, have heard about it, uh, calling for a 20% decline in stocks from here by mid-October. The gist of it is stocks are just too expensive with inflation this high. Well, what if we cut that in half and we said there's a 10% downturn? I just think that's a little bit too overly pessimistic. Looking at the numbers, looking at where earnings are going to come in this year, taking any multiple you want, it seems like maybe he's taking it down a little bit too far. But I think we're talking about a range-bound market that's forward-looking, thinking about the prospect and probability of a recession. Certainly, we know there's going to be an aggressive Fed, and the quantitative tightening is probably something he's taking into great consideration and perhaps thinking that maybe markets are discounting too much. So I, I don't disagree with a, a little bit of a scary call here over the short term. I think he might be a, a little bit more on the extreme side than I would be. And, and again, being a, a glass half full guy, Scott, next year we could be coming out of a recession. So if we're range bound for the next six, 12 months, 18 months from here, we've got some pretty sound prospects. And if he's right and it goes down 20, we'll back the truck up and buy whatever we can. Sounded like he would as well. I uh, appreciate it very much. That's Kevin Simpson joining us. Up next, Santoli's last word. Uh, we're back in overtime to the results now of our Twitter question of the day. We asked you, do you, like Scott Minard, see a 20% sell-off in stocks by mid-October? 61% of you said no. Let's bring in Mike Santoli for his last word. Uh, they either don't believe it or they don't want to believe it. Well, <laughs> the both. both. I, I tell you, the news to me is that more than a third of the people are willing to say this market is so mispriced that we're going down 20% in six weeks. It rarely happens. Calling a crash usually requires some other conditions to fall into place, not just necessarily a valuation reset. I have respect for the idea that there are a lot of tricky things that we're contending with here. Obviously, the Fed is tightening into some kind of a slowdown at minimum. Uh, you clearly have seasonal effects and maybe uh, earnings uh, seem like they have a lot of air under them. We'll see. But 
you know, if you go back four months, this market's been at a four-month trading range since mm-hmm. early May. May 10th of this year, the S&P closed at 4,000. You had a little less than 10% downside max to there. You had a little bit less than 10% upside from there. That's where we've been, and we closed at 4,000 today. Valuation is about the same as it was then. Market seems to be behaving as if 2022, the calendar year, could be the year that we load in a lot of the tough stuff that we had to get through, meaning speculative parts of the markets get purged, valuations to some degree compress, and the Fed finishes or at least gets most of the way to where it has to go. Ultimately, his point is that there's no justification for valuations to be where they are relative to where inflation is, uh, seasonality, and what lies ahead uh, from, from the Fed's standpoint. The, 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 the problem is, is you cannot answer what the correct valuation is because right. you have no idea where earnings are going to you be never in the can, next 12 months. And that's exactly right. So you don't know that w- what earnings or what path they're going to take. You also don't know what inflation number you're supposed to plug into a forward valuation. We're talking about future returns here. So if you think inflation staying where it's been for the last year, absolutely. The market should be crushed and valuation should not be anywhere near here. Clearly, the market-based inflation indicators are saying, no, that's not the case. Either the hard way or the easy way we get inflation down is the current bet that's in aggregate in the markets right now. The hard way is a recession. Probably earnings you know, have a lot uh, of room to go down in that scenario. Or if not, if, as Jonathan Golub was saying, because you have high nominal growth, they can hold up better. That's a different equation. So I, I, think, it's, I think there's another way of, of actually kind of squaring this, which is you start with somewhat elevated valuations versus prior market lows. That just means future returns are lower. It doesn't mean it's a cataclysm and you get all the excess out in one burst. It could just mean it's choppier. It's not a steep angle of ascent once we do start going higher. Now, what do you make of the idea, which he also put forth, of this cataclysmic event in the market, a crash, um, and that causes a credit event in its own right, and, and that brings the Fed uh, to a much softer place, if, if you want to use that word. It would absolutely happen. That kind of volatility concentrated in that shorter period of time, no doubt about it. Credit would not be unscathed, and then you're, you're back to the Fed right. uh, coming to the risk. Going to get a lot of people talking for sure. I'll see you tomorrow. That's right, Mike yep. Santoli with his last word. Fast Money begins now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.